the rest of us, we're going to be taking a look this morning uh, at the Gospel of John, this ancient story of Jesus, one of uh, the disciples who followed along after Jesus in his old age, reflecting back on what it was, what that experience meant, what it was that Jesus was doing and working. And, and already we've seen Jesus kind of flip the world upside down. He, he, he throws a party. He uh, chases uh, folks out of the temple with a whip. He, he challenges a teacher of the law of what does it really mean to believe in Christ. Today we are going to take a look and, and kind of circle back to this person, John the Baptist, one of uh, the, the prophet who God gave to the world to announce the coming of Jesus. And it's John that's going to help us understand a little bit clearer what it means to live a life of faith, what it looks like to believe in Jesus and find life in him. Join with me. I'm going to start reading in John chapter 3, starting in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aon near Salim, where because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, and the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in prayer. Father, as we gather together and, and hear and look at your word, God, I pray that your spirit would open eyes, that you would soften hearts, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear the truth of what you have done in the world and the, the beautiful hope that we have been given in Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a number of, I guess it was seven years ago, my, uh, my brother was getting married. He's my older brother by about two years, and uh, he 
perhaps foolishly, as, as time will tell, uh, asked me to be the best man in his wedding. Now, I've, I've had two rodeos uh, at, at this job, right? And um, perhaps the highlight of this role is the toast, right? It's the best man's speech. It's the gathering at the reception when we foolishly give a microphone uh, to a usually young male to say whatever it is that they want to say. Now, typically, um, the, the maid of honor or matron of honor is usually a little bit better at this, right? They normally come prepared with their three and a half uh, by five inch cards, right? Every card, I think, says the same thing. You're so sweet. You're so beautiful. I love you, right? Uh, over and over and over again. But the best man speech is a little bit different. Um, I kind of uh, favor the, the version of best man speech that's a little bit like a roast, right? You know what I'm talking about, where you, 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 you take and you poke some fun, right, at the person's uh, eccentricities, right? They're, they're, they're in a funny story, an embarrassing, uh, goofy moment that you all share together. And, and then you bring it all together into an encouraging toast. Well, I'll say this. Uh, for my brother, I needed no note cards, right? I have 25 years of training in making fun of my brother, so doing this publicly was no big deal, right? This was actually very easy. I got up, and, and sure enough, you know, the, the maid of honor came up, and she said really sweet and delightful things, um, and then I got up, and uh, I roasted my brother. I had the crowd, la I mean, the crowd was like dying laughing. I mean, it was just one thing after another. I was just on point, right? I then even transitioned it so smoothly into, you know, uh, an appreciation for, you know, the beauty and the kindness of the bride once again. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a preacher, right? So I put a nice little Jesus bow on the top of the package and sit, sat back down after a toast and felt really, really good about myself, right? I nailed it. I took this party and just took it one step forward. But it was sometime later that somebody uh, told me about that day, and, and they told me about something that I missed. You see, I, I told them the funny stories about my brother, and I told them about some of his eccentricities. I, I told them um, things and, and poked fun at him, but I never told them what kind of man my brother was. I never told them that, that one of the greatest uh, compliments people would give me as a kid was that I was Tony's little brother. Right? I never told them that he was always the one who encouraged me the most to keep trying to do better. He, let's put it this way. He's the only person alive who has ever told me on a basketball court, hey, Ben, keep shooting, right? No one else has ever said that except for the defense. They tell me to keep shooting. But the offense, no. But he is this person in my life. And in that moment of his, he gave me uh, uh, the seat and the microphone to give a toast in his honor, but somehow I forgot to ever bring up his honor, right? He, he gave me the chance to speak to this crowd, to introduce him 
to this extended family that was now his to take. And I got the laughter. I got the, the pats on the back, right? I had, had people telling me afterward just how articulate and, and great I was. But really, when you think about it, a speech like that should have ended with him getting pats on the back, not me, right? A speech like that should have uh, raised the esteem of him and, and the way God has used him in the world. I was a groomsman, the esteemed groomsman who forgot the groom. We come to this text, and John even uses this, this illustration, this picture of what we'll call the best man. It was obviously a little different in first century Palestine, but, but he come, brings us into this situation, this little nook and, and peek into the, the life of John the Baptist and his disciples. And I think he does it because there's something we need to realize as Christians, that we as Christians are prone to forget the Christ. Like a groomsman who forgets the groom, we are Christians who forget the Christ. We, we live in the world, and we soak up the good parts of, of what it means to be a Christian. We hear the, the, the laughter, the applause, the, the pats on the back, but we forget the one for whom those things are meant. They're meant to introduce the world to a Christ. Too often we're focused on being Christians that we forget the Christ. We'll play this out as we go along, but the question here this morning is, is why? Why do we do it? What is it that, that makes us become so caught up in being a Christian that we forget the Christ? I'm going to give us two things to look at there this morning, and the first is this, is that we don't want to ruin what we've got going. We don't want to ruin what we've got going. You can see in this text John's disciples, right? And it's not hard to, to figure out where they're coming from. They have, have been in, in some sort of debate or argument with a Jew. And, and somehow in the course of this, it was brought to their attention that, you know, John the Baptist has been at this a long time. But this new fella, this Jesus, has somehow started attracting all the people. Right? You can hear their words. You can hear the, the, the language that they use here in verse 26. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, right? that, that nameless one, right? he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you went and told witness about. You were the one who pointed people towards him. Look, he is baptizing and everyone's going to him. Everyone is going to him, and that means they're not coming to us, right? These disciples are distressed, and, and they are worried that Jesus is stealing their thunder, that Jesus is taking their laughter and their applause and their joy. But John responds to his disciples. Right? He responds to them with this picture of a, of a groomsman that's the kind of, the, I guess, the anti-Ben groomsman, if you will. Right? The groomsman who, who understands something central to his task, that the groomsman's joy is the groom's joy. The groomsman's joy, the best man's joy, is when he hears and he sees the joy on the face of the bride and the groom. There is a role, there is a position, there is 
a place. John tells them essentially this, these people aren't mine to receive. Of course they're going to Jesus because he is the groom. That's where they're supposed to be. He says, I've already told you this once in verse 28. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. I have been sent to point to him. I have been sent that people might know and see and run to him. There was a, uh, I think it was a chapel service when I was in, in seminary. And uh, I don't really remember. I don't think I was there, which is probably true because I was kind of bad at skipping chapel, okay? But one of our professors, and, and I imagine he was preaching on this passage or one like it, and, uh, and he, he took this group of, of would-be pastors, right? The, the soon-to-be counselors, the soon-to-be ministry workers in the world, and he made each and every one of them stand up, right? And he would say, uh, all right, now repeat after me. I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. I am not the person who is going to bring life into the people who I minister to. I am not the one who is deserving of their applause. I am not the one who ties everything together in a perfect bow. My job, my calling, my role is to represent Christ to be the sign that points in his direction, to be the, the encourager, right? To be the confessor, to be the person who shows what life is. In many ways, it's like uh, the, the person John the Baptist here, right? God gave him a very specific job, a job that before people would see and hear of the kingdom of God in Jesus, they would first see it and hear it in John. Right? You're not pastors. Right? You don't come to church uh, every morning uh, worrying if people will think highly of you or think you're an idiot like I do. Right? Uh, you are in a, a little bit different role, but you still have a job, a God-ordained role to play in the world. If you've come to Redeemer, you've heard us say this a lot, but God is bringing a kingdom, and if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he has called you a citizen of that kingdom. And he's put you in this time and place that, that before the world could see, before the world can understand who Jesus is, who the Christ is, that they would see the Jesus in you, right? That they would see the transformation that is possible, that they would see uh, that, that, that sin becomes less and God's grace becomes more. That they would experience you as a person who has truth and, and justice and peace because those are the things that your king who is in heaven has, right? That we would be the image of God, the little statues that show the world who God is and what he's doing. You, we are the introduction into Christ in many ways similar to the John the Baptist was here. What I want to talk to us about this morning is that I think often we have this position and we have this role. And rather than taking people along with us to go find the Christ, we try to fill in and sit in as his substitutes. Right? So we as a church are not 
in necessarily inclined towards the kinds of what, what churches call evangelism, right? Telling people about Jesus that, that you may have seen in other contexts, right? We're not prone to put up billboards um, that, that tell people from uh, an, an impersonal distance about Jesus. We're not people that are um, prone to, to keep quotas for how many people you've uh, told about Jesus, but we are a church that deeply believes that the best way to love people is to uh, bring them to know the one who is love. That the best way to, to invest in your friends and your family, the best way to lead, that, to love them as they ought to be loved is to show them a God who made them, who redeems them, who offers them freedom from themselves that they might experience true and full life. And many of us have, have taken that and we have gone out armed with the love of Christ. You've seen the beauty of the image of God in, in folks who don't know Jesus. And you have, have looked at that and you have applauded it, right? You've looked at those people and you've become engaged in relationship with folks who live very different lives than you live. Who look very different than you do. If I look out at this congregation, I see people that, that live and serve and love in every corner of this city. You've learned from folks. You've loved with them. And yet, there's something in us, I think, that's still a little bit scared that if we say the name Jesus in those conversations, if we bring up the life and death of Jesus into these relationships, these friendships, these uh, companionships we've built and forged with unbelievers, that somehow they will leave us. John the Baptist's disciples were worried that people would think Jesus was so attractive that they would leave John the disciple, but the Baptist. But I think we're probably more inclined to think that if people see Jesus, well, maybe they'll be scared off. They'll run away, right? And so we want to keep uh, the relationships uh, that are we've developed and we've flourished, but we want to keep us at the middle, right? We want to join with them in, in efforts of common good, but we don't want to bring it up that we're drawn to the common good because we have a God who's drawn to the common good. right? We want to build friendships with unbelievers, but we rarely want to say the name Jesus. Rarely do we want to invest in that kind of high-risk game, right? What if the aroma of Christ is a stench of death to them? What if they leave us? What if they think we're crazy? What if we're no longer the cool Christian, but one that, that believes those arcane and crazy things? So instead of, of, of being free to explain why we do what we do, we're content to, to let them applaud us for being a, a quote, good person, right? We're, we're happy to, to keep friendships on the level where we can laugh and divert attention away from any issue of controversy or, or substance, right? We're happy to receive pats on the back for people telling us that we're always there for them without ever talking about the kind of community that loves us and allows us to love other people. 
And see, here's the thing. If you're a Christian who never gets around to, to talking about Christ, who, who gets around and is hiding that portion of your life from your friends, then they will, you will lead them to think that those are just personal attributes of you rather than the work of God in your life. In other words, you'll lead them to think that you are the hope for the world, that you are uh, the, the one who brings and restores what is right to the world. They'll think that you, in other words, are the Christ, or maybe a little tiny Christ, one who sets things straight. But John's conviction was not that he could teach people better than Jesus, but that people would find Jesus. John says, I am not the Christ. You're going to go have to find him. John knows that to tell people about Christ without leading them to Christ, to tell people about the things of Christ, I should be clear, without leading them to Christ that that's an empty proposition because the one who brings life, we've hidden him from their eyes. We've said, look at me, not look at me as I follow Christ. So number one, why do we do it? We do it because we don't want to ruin what we've got going. We've got friends, we've got jobs, we've got relationships, we've got esteem. Why would we want to risk losing those? The second, though, is that if we're going to be honest with ourselves in those moments, what we're really trying to do is to give ourselves a promotion. We're really trying to, to give our uh, esteem not just a, a negative space where we're, we're not giving the, the, the praise to God, but in fact, we're actively trying to make them think better of us than they think of Christ. If you look at this last uh, paragraph here, starting in verse 31, John uh, lays out for us uh, a whole lot of kind of, uh, they can seem kind of obscure uh, verses, right? They kind of, they don't flow with quite the, the rhythm that we want them to. But their point's not that hard to understand. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and thus speaks in an earthly way but he who comes from heaven is above all and and if it is that word from heaven of course that can lead us to eternal life i got a few of my seminary peeps here so i'll i'll uh, i'll give you another seminary illustration uh there's a, another professor of mine and and one of his drawings that he would write up on the board and he would write it up almost every day it seems as he would write up on the, the board and he would write God right and then he would write a line and then he would say uh, all things or everything else underneath he would say there's God here and there's a line here and then there's everything else so there is a God who is above everything else but then he would also draw another arrow it's an arrow that was pointing down Right, the, the relationship between God and man is, is there is a line between us and the line only moves in one direction. We only understand God when God comes to us. We only see truth when God speaks it to us. We only uh, understand ourselves when God reveals himself to us and we can find our way in him. 
It only flows in one direction, I think, is what uh, the Apostle John is telling us in this paragraph. That there is a God and there is everything else, including me and you. But if you, if you miss this point, if you think about this point, then, then you could, if you don't see this point, I should say, you will look at John the Baptist and be like, John, you're telling them the good news. You're telling them to repent. You're telling them that the kingdom is heaven. John, you're doing good work, right? But John says, no, 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 no. If you miss this point, if you miss that, that Jesus is the only way, then we are leaving them with nothing. Because if at the end of the day, the hearers, all they have are John's opinions, then they've not received from God the salvation that he's offered. They've not received from God the truth that can lead to life. If all they have uh, is John's word, then all they have is man's opinion and the wrath of God for their rebellion at hand. John says, I can't uh, try to claim, lay claim to these people, these crowds uh, that, that are following after Jesus because Jesus is not like me. Jesus has come from above. I can't try to compete with that. I can't try to, to upgrade or, or, or persuade them that my way is better. And yet, I think despite this kind of dire warning, right? The dire warning that he says at the end, that there is a tremendous risk that if you miss the Christ, that you will miss life, that you will miss redemption, that you will miss uh, forgiveness of your sins, and you will remain in wrath. And yet I think Christians have a long history as we present Christ to the world, as we present the kingdom of God to the world, where we want to kind of clean up and polish a little bit of what Jesus says. We need to clean up and polish a little bit of, of the, the harsh edges that the person of Jesus has, that the words that Jesus said, and, and we try to, to clean it up that the world might find it more palatable, right? But when you change the words of Jesus, you're no longer, uh, you're not only are you not pointing to Jesus, you're now trying to compete with him, right? That my version of the story is better than his. Let me give you an example. Um, I don't know if you know this, but humans throughout history have tended to be uh, fans of sex, right? Like, it's okay. That I, I think that's kind of funny, right? It's an obvious statement, right? We have always been a people who, who are drawn to, uh, to sex, and yet when you look at the Jesus that's presented in the Bible, when you look at the, the words and the laws of God the Father, uh, as he engages, he, he is really only a fan of, of one particular kind of sexual relationship, right? The relationship between a, a man and a woman, that sex and marriage belong in this one context. And so I think a lot of Christians uh, have heard this, and we know, we know that the world uh, wants sexual freedom, and so we will tell 
uh, start telling, changing our message about sex and marriage that hypes it up, right? We're going to take sex and marriage and make it the, the end-all, be-all of human existence, right? We're going to have a, a purity movement that tells you you can have all the sex you want. It's going to be the best sex ever. Just wait, right? Assuming that, but waiting assumes that there's an end, right? The church has, has taken and, and bought into a, a language about sex, like it's a, a, a human need, like it's a bowel movement, right, instead of the way that God talks about sex. In our churches, we've taken uh, singleness, right, and we've taken singleness, and, and maybe not through explicit teaching, right, but through the way that we uh, pick Sunday school leaders or the way that we uh, talk about life of faith, we've said that single folks, folks who embrace a life other than marriage, uh, a life without sex and marriage, that they are somehow second-class citizens, right? Search committees look over single candidates because they can't possibly get it. We've taken this beautiful metaphor that God gives us that Jesus' relationship with his church is, is like a husband and a wife, and we've taken that and twisted it to say that this is the uh, question whether someone could really be spiritually mature if they don't have a spouse. And we do all of that, and, and we have some, some pictures, but the end of the day, the Bible is, says a very different story. The Bible says a different story about sex and marriage. Instead of it being the end-all, be-all, it gives us Jesus, right? Who lives as a single person, right? Who, who rather than singleness being a second class, Jesus is the pinnacle of the human experience that he lived out as a man without a wife. Jesus tells them that um, marriage is not for everyone. All right, Paul comes along, and in his letter to 1 Corinthians, he directly and specifically advocates that people would consider the option of remaining single, right? That's not a message you hear preached too often, right? You don't often hear that, that people says, Paul actually says it's better for people to remain single. But the church doesn't want to hear that because the church has said, no, the, the solution to the the world not liking our sex talk is to, to lift up sex and marriage on this pinnacle and we have the real deal and everyone else is wrong. And in the meantime, while we have twisted the words of God to make them more palatable, to, to make us a, a case for our hearers, when we have taken sex and marriage and made them the end all, be all, We've neglected the teaching that God's word gives us that there is the potential for a full, robust life that has nothing to do with sex and has nothing to do with marriage. We've taken the teachings of Christ's community, of his church, and we've the, a community that's meant to be the father to the fatherless, but it's also meant to be the, the, the husband to the widow. Right? We've taken this community that, with all of its rich promises of, of a community that could be your fellowship, that could be your support, that could give you intimacy and care and knowledge, and we've kind of, well, we've just kind of turned that off or dialed it down a bit because we've got to keep up the lie that sex and marriage is the most important thing. You tracking with me? I'm about to take it farther. 
right? Because the thing is, is uh, lies like all lies, you have to keep lying to, to keep it up. You have to keep going farther down uh, that road, right? And the case, uh, the case and point of this is the dialogue that we hear in our world today, right? If you've made sex and marriage the prominent way to follow after Christ, then what do you do when your kid comes and says that they're gay? If sex and marriage is the pinnacle of human relationships, if it's the, the pinnacle and the isolation of what community ought to be as a follower of Jesus Christ, then what do you do when your kid comes to you and says that they're gay? If you're a parent in this uh, situation, there's I'm going to offer two ways that people have responded. And both of the two ways that people have responded are, are, are tendencies towards furthering the lie, right? Because you can't look at this person and say that there is a life of full and robust community, that there is a life of richness and joy in singleness. You have to come up with other options. And you have to come up with those options because uh, the teaching of the Bible in multiple places throughout the span of every dispensation of church history is that sex and marriage is not between two people of the same gender. It's said in the Old Testament. It's said in the New Testament. It's illustrated in the words of the actual Jesus' words when he illustrates what marriage is. But in our brains, because we're so conditioned that sex and marriage, sex and marriage, sex and marriage is the right, it's the privilege, it's the same, the end-all, be-all, singleness isn't even an option for a mother or father with a child that they love. So here's your two, two lies that further the first lie. One uh, is to, uh, which has been done historically throughout the life of the church, is to deny, to ostracize, to belittle, to rebuke. Uh, to tell your son or daughter that they ought to be straight, right? To put them back in the closet and to turn the key to, to, to tell them that you couldn't possibly uh, be born that way because God would never allow someone to be uh, born with such disordered appetites. This phrase, that God wouldn't want this, that God wouldn't want that. You hear the, what you're claiming, right? that you know what's above the line, that you understand what's there, right? And so uh, gay folks in the church have been marginalized. They've been pushed out. They have been abused. They've been neglected because the people who are doing those things to them have to convince themselves that God wouldn't make them go through disordered desires, except for that's the story the Bible tells. That each of us after the fall of Adam is born with disordered appetites that lead us to long for things which we ought not long for. Things that Jesus says, if you want life, if you're going to experience what real, true joy and life is, you must abandon those ways of human thinking and cling to the promises of God. And so because we can't accept the word of God, we must ostracize, we must close our eyes, we must push them to the corner, and in the process we hurt people. 
There's a second lie, though, and, and the second lie is to say, well, we've already said that sex and marriage is the most important thing, and that if to deprive anyone of those things is, is to be abusive and, and hate-filled, right? To, to encourage or exhort someone to say that, that Jesus would look upon them and encourage them to, to, to deny that portion of themselves, to deny the, the portion of themselves that, that I deserve or I must have sex and marriage because Jesus says there's a different way. But because we've chosen sex and marriage, you, you must then look at your child and, and say, go on, do your thing, you be you, find a partner, sit down and live life, and surely, surely, God wouldn't want you to be alone. The salvation history is, is filled with people that God says, you are alone and I will be with you. You've taken uh, the, the clear and the, the consistent teachings of Jesus, of the actual Jesus who lived and walked on the earth, the, the, the teachings and the proclamations of God, the God who made the earth and, and lives in it by his Holy Spirit, and you've taken those teachings and you said, mm, let's, let's just tweak this a little bit. Let's make this a little bit smoother, a little bit more palatable. But when you do that, when you take the words of Jesus, when you take the claims of Jesus and you tweak them just a little bit, then you are no longer introducing people to the Jesus of the Bible. You're no longer introducing people to the Christ who brings freedom and redemption. You are introducing people to your own invented morality, to your own invented uh, system of life and death. You've try to be an arbiter of truth rather than a receiver of truth. And John tells us here in John 3 that he who comes from above is above, and he who is on the earth belongs to the earth. Instead of trying to, to make Jesus, instead of trying to point people to a real life relationship, a life and a relationship that is far sweeter than sex and marriage could ever dare dream. We take them, we shun them, we take them, we lead them blindly towards that which the God of the Bible says brings death. Neither of these options leads the person towards life and neither of them shows them the beauty of the real Christ, the Christ of the scriptures. So we can find our voice uh, with John as we say, I am not the Christ. And so I'll stop pretending like I am. When I uh, got up to give the best man speech that day, I got up and, and I, I didn't think in my brain that I was going to uh, trying to change the story. I didn't get up that day and think I am focused on myself and making myself feel good to receive the applause and the adoration of, of the crowd. I didn't get up that morning thinking I'm going to take my brother's wedding and, and make it all about me. And yet that's what happened. It's what happened because rather than focusing on the groom, I was focused on myself. Rather than pointing people towards the groom and, and seeing his, his wit and his uh, 
his love and his graciousness, I wanted to show the, the people in that room that I was loved, that I was gracious, that I was the one uh, to consider and to look at, to applaud and to pat on the back. When I decided to promote myself as the party savior, I chose to pretend that the thing was all about me. When we choose to keep the spotlight on us, when we take the praise uh, for who we are and we don't turn it over to Christ and acknowledge his hand in our lives, then, then we have ruined the opportunity to introduce people to the real Jesus. The real Jesus who finds people who are weak and broken, that finds people who are lonely and isolated, that find people who don't know what to even think of themselves. And he says, I have made you. I have loved you. And I have died on the cross that your life might be free from sin and filled to new life. Brothers and sisters, we are not the Christ. And it's a good thing. Because if, uh, if, if the real Christ can love your friend, the real Christ can love your coworker, the real Christ can love your family member, your son, your daughter, your grandma, your grandpa, your aunt, your uncle in ways that you could never dream of. The real Christ can awaken the dead and bring hope to the desperate. The real Christ can bring life to a world that is dry and weary. So let's point to him. Let's look to him. Let's run to him and bring others with us along for the journey. Pray with me. God, we gather this morning. Lord, and as we hear the Baptist words that he must increase, but I must decrease, Lord, we confess that we're prone to flip the two around that we want to be thought well of, that we want to be esteemed, that we want to be honored among men to the point that we would hide men from you, that we would be the kind of Christians who forget to mention the Christ. Lord, lead us to look to you as the author of hope, to look to you as the, the, the place of peace, to look to you to be the balm that covers our sins that covers the areas of our life where we have experienced tremendous brokenness and tremendous hurt. Gather because it is in you, in the Jesus Christ who lived and worked in this world, who lived and died that we might find life. It is in you that we can experience true, full life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.